I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman. A joy to be joined today by John Manuel Arias, who is a queer Costa Rican American poet and writer. He is a Canto Mundo fellow and alumnus of the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop. He has lived in Washington, D.C., Brooklyn, New York, and in San Jose, Costa Rica with his grandmother and four ghosts. Where There Was Fire is his debut novel. John, welcome. Thank you so much. I am so excited to be here with you, Maris. Yay! I'm so excited to have you. I I love an author bio that um, demands interrogation. <laughs> so, I mean, I, the the great part is is that it's true, but also it gets a good laugh at readings. I, I love that, <laughs> and it, it it's we're we're coming into this novel feeling like maybe you're writing a little bit about what you know maybe it's not your personal experience but you 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 are experience with that kind of porous border between life and death yeah yeah it definitely um it's true i did live with my grandmother and i did live with four ghosts and i knew who they are and they were quite annoying <laughs> were they what, what what were they like what were they doing well, they're scary if you sort of, I've had friends visit my grandmother's house and they get, it's kind of like a force field. They get to the threshold and they go, whoa, 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 something's going on here. And I'm like, no, it's fine. You just sort of see the shadows in the, you know how old people have those convex television screens and yes. so you can see the entire room. And so you'll see the shadow sort of fly by. And then I've woken up and the covers on my bed have been taken off and folded on the floor and just really fun. Um, they're not mishaps, 
but they're just minor inconveniences, which I think is what the dead do, because they're probably really bored. I think, what would I do if I was a ghost? I would probably inconvenience the living. I love that. And and, and where there is fire, the dead are often around. They, they come back and um, chat with the living all the time, because, of course, the, yeah, if... If you're bored, you want to uh, catch up with people. Yeah, definitely. And so I don't want listeners to get the wrong idea. This is not a horror novel, but it is a ghost story, you could say. Fair? Yes, very fair. Absolutely. Um, I guess what sets it apart, because you're right, it's not horror. Um, I just taught a magical realism workshop with the shipment agency and it's uh, a craft. So it's the way that you use ghosts, right? Um, what are they meant to do in the story and how, uh, how can they achieve that? I love that. And, and I, I was going to ask you about something that happens later in the book and I think I'll give it away right now. It's not, <laughs> it's not a spoiler. I promise. Um, but when Gabriel is in Costa Rica. He sees a woman doling out lines from the Bible. And of course, her Bible is not the Bible. It's 100 years of solitude. And <laughs> um, I, I would love to hear about that name check as we start to discuss your book. <laughs> That's hilarious. Well, that woman is me. I do walk around just saying the first lines from 100 Years of Solitude and just talking about it. Um, it is a cultural landmark in Latin America. It's the one that, you know, started the boom. It put Latin America on the map on a global scale. And it just spoke to everyone who read it. I mean, my uncle has read it, I think, 10 times um, in English and in Spanish. I actually really like the English translation of 100 Years of Solitude, the very classic one that's been around for the last 50 years. But I forgot the translator's name. I'm so sorry if you're we'll listening. Look it up for the show notes. <laughs> we'll look it up. Yes. Um, but 100 Years of Solitude is just Garcia Marquez sat down and he showed what could be done with time, what could be done with the, like you said earlier, the porous nature of what it is to be between the living and the dead, how they just come in, they hop out, and you're just going to hang out with them because that is just the way that it is. So not only did Garcia Marquez write this big saga that contains elements of 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 the magical in, in just about every page so so we're going into where there is fire and it's a big story like we see a family tree on the first page and there aren't that many people and yet <laughs> the story keeps kind of expanding and, and the ripple ripples of 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 the plot kind of grow wider as we go um so I wanted to ask you a really practical question sure. about plotting. You have a lot of characters and storylines to keep track of. Tell me, tell me how you did that. Um, well, so there are a few answers to that. And shout out to Naji, my editor, who very much helped. Um, Naji understood 
because I believe Najee has an MFA in poetry. And so that's my first answer is that I am a poet, as some of you may know, and I am an associative poet, which means that my poetry doesn't have a clear narrative through. Uh, what I do is I jump from association to association in order to ground the reader in the narrative. And so what I do with the book is you choose very uh, big recognizable association. So for example, a very hot night, it's easy to go back and forth, right? You choose yeah. a hurricane, it's easy to go back and through in order to situate the reader in time, because I don't believe in linear time, both like philosophically, culturally, I don't believe that Latin America follows linear time. And I think it's a very restricting and incorrect view of like the world and art and the way that fiction works, especially American fiction. So relieving myself of the tethers of linear time allowed me to approach it in a completely different way, right? Because I believe that we experience time all at the same moment. So in this present moment, uh, we are time traveling through the past with our memories and we are fast forwarding into the future with our hopes and dreams or our different lives and different selves are living those as well. And so that's what I put my characters through, I guess you could say, <laughs> that all of these things, you know, uh, all of these things are happening concurrently. And the reader... You know, uh, some people might be a little bit hesitant to read that way, but sometimes it's great to just go along with the ride. Absolutely. And, and, and I think especially for the reader, it then becomes a question of what are we privy to when? Yeah. Um, which, which chunks of time are, are revealed to us? Because for so much of the book, we know that there were two very tragic nights in the lives of these characters. And we know that they happened, but yeah. we don't know the circumstances and, and why. And and that seems like a, a, a rough thing to create a mystery around. Yeah. I mean, it is the way that people tell stories as well. Um, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about storytelling from my grandmother and Angie Cruz said it at her release for How Not to Drown in a Glass of Water, is that when you are a person just telling a story, you have to excite the person in front of you. You know, you have to tell it in a great way that's going to keep them going with this narrative. But when have you ever heard a person tell a narrative completely in chronological order and also without having tangents? It doesn't happen. That's just not the way that people tell stories. So reading a novel like that would be, like I said, a little bit restricting, but structuring it was very particular. <laughs> <laughs> I can see. So tell me a little bit about the American Fruit Company, which seems very similar to the companies that we now know as Dole and Chiquita. Yes. So definitely did not want to name drop either the United Fruit <laughs> Company or the Standard Fruit Company because those lawyers would have been uh, on poor Flatiron's doorstep. And we don't want to do that. And uh, besides, you know, 
that I, I say that very flippantly because in the history of the 20th century, those two were very terrifying. And they're still very terrifying. Uh, they still have massive powers. These banana lawyers for the last hundred and so years are so powerful. And the United Fruit Company, which is today Chiquita Bananas, um, had so much sway in the U.S. government that it influenced coup d'etats in different countries. Honduras, Guatemala, the famous coup d'etat in 1954. So I majored in Latin American studies and English at Pace in downtown New York City. And one of the first things that you learn when you're taking these Latin American studies courses is about the banana companies. It is, they're inextricable from Latin American history. And so Dole Fruit in the 1960s and part of the 70s used this pesticide called Nemagon. And Dow Chemical who produced Nemagon went to Dole and they said, we're going to discontinue because this pesticide is causing sterility in male mammals. And we believe it will be causing it in men. And Dole said, no, you're not. We're going to sue you for everything that you have. And still, for another decade, Dow was producing and shipping Nemagon by the ton to Costa Rica and to Nicaragua and other countries. And so this fruit company uh, knowingly sterilized in Costa Rica 30,000 people. And you're so good about showing us exactly how insidious this company is in terms of the entire, its workers are beholden to the American Fruit Company in just about every way you can imagine down to when when he's having a bad night, Jose Maria um, drinks in in the company's bar. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, they they had entire compounds, these plantations. The workers were essentially indentured, and so this company would build quarters for the workers to sleep, and they would have a grocery store. And they would have a cantina and liquor stores where these workers uh, were working essentially for free because they were receiving money from this company and giving it right back to them. It was this disgusting, very vicious cycle. And these workers, what were they going to do? There was no other choice. And yet there were labor uprisings there was hope that that the workers could come together and yet the 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 best um symbol of course of of what happened to to some of that is um what happens to Teresa's father yes talk about that yeah very complicated man um Tacito uh I he was based off of my great-grandfather my uh, grandmother's father. He was a communist and he was a union leader against the United Fruit Company, actually for many years. And during the Civil War in 1948, he was hunted down. And so he ran from his home. He lived in a cave. Um, my great-grandmother would bring him food 
uh, he hid it away in a train to escape. It was very, very, very dramatic, right? As is a Latin American family. Uh, but my grandmother says that when he finally came home, he was skeleton thin and with a beard out to his chest. So it was many years before he was able to safely come back. And so a huge part of this novel was trying to separate Teresa, the protagonist, from my grandmother. How can I deviate uh, from this woman who I love, her life story? How can I deviate in different ways? That, of course, does what I need to do in the novel. And so Tacito, the great irony of repackaging my great-grandfather as this corporate lawyer for the United Fruit Company, who used to be a communist syndicate head against the company, was very fun, but also it revealed the hypocrisy, right, of some high, high-powered, very rich uh, Costa Ricans as well, or people in Latin America as well, who are complicit in what these fruit companies have done, right? Because they can't do it completely independently. The government and high-powered people, uh, aristocrats, had very much to do with the way that these fruit companies lodged into the countries. And Teresa's family is such a good kind of representation of having many different sides in terms of class. Maybe just give us a little background in terms of Teresa's financial situation versus her mother's and um, and her husband's. Yeah, so throughout the novel, class is an oscillating thing. It is mercurial because being in Latin America especially in a monocrop economy, it's very susceptible to the market, right? So countries are very susceptible to the market. And so is this family. So uh, Amarga, who is Teresa's uh, mother, grows up very rich, but hated by her father because her father is a monster. And so Tacito, her husband, also makes a lot of money with the American Fruit Company, but once he disappears and the savings dry up, because Amarga has never worked a day in her life, she's a socialite, uh, they fall into financial ruin. And so Teresa also falls into this type of ruin. But where Amarga suffers in her poverty, uh, Teresa doesn't mind it as much because she finds a man who works, who's a hacker of bananas on this fruit plantation she finds solace in the love, right? And so they live still in this beautiful shining shell of a house, but they no longer have the finances. And the way that they used money was differently, right? Amarga had a different relationship to money than Teresa did. And yeah, it, it, is, a, it is a very oscillating thing now that I think about it for, for one individually as well right we live in new york city yeah our poverty is one paycheck away for sure and why would it be any different for this for this family and so that was really interesting to me is to see the rise and fall and the rise uh, and how it affected different characters yeah and and there's we get to see uh teresa's best friend christina and her husband 
Desiderio, who it, it, it seems as though they are a little bit better along at, at various points in the story. Um, but, but one of the things that I wanted to ask you about with them is on, on the night that it was so hot that many things went wrong, uh, Teresa accompanies Christina and Desiderio to, to see Blood Wedding. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about Garcia Lorca. Yes. So, I mean, in every poet's life, they remember the first time that they read Garcia Lorca because he was just a complete genius, completely out of his mind. The images and the um, just the the language the pain that runs through the poems and also his plays is it's life-changing and blood wedding was a life-changing play to read and it was fascinating because of the moon in the play and for those who've read it for those who've not read it uh, it is about a couple who are about to get married but the woman is running away with the man's best friend. So towards the end of the play, the moon, literal moon walks out onto stage and she has this bloodthirsty monologue where she says the moon leaves a, a dagger hanging in the air so that she can crawl into the chest of the dead so that she can warm herself with their blood. And it is fascinating to see the moon represented in that way. And I have my own complicated relationship with the moon. Mm. People think I'm a little cuckoo bananas, but <laughs> I have a very long story about the moon. And so seeing this moon and also making the moon uh, very queer in the book because this female actress or this female character is actually played by a young man. And so, because I thought it was more fun that way, and having the moon, who is gendered she in the book, looking down at her understudy, who is a boy, and feeling rage was really, really interesting. And it was really fun. You know, I had a lot of fun writing this novel, and I had a lot of fun, like, queering this novel in a lot of ways like if one doesn't get it on the first read the second read is just like <laughs> oh is she a lesbian oh this kid is this kid trans so and so and so right yes so I especially found that kind of joy in queering in the moon character but also fascinating because she made a great villain <laughs> yeah yeah and 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 you're your novel is is full of great villains and and great mythologies overall. Teresa's grandmother, the witch, tells her that men are devils and and women are saints, which is a very binary way. <laughs> but I'm wondering if you could talk about that and 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 of course, um, tell her tell us the the advice she she gives. Yeah, of course. I um, I had a really interesting time with the grandmother character. 
because as these generations of women go on, they have a different relationship to machismo and marianismo and feminism. And how does each generation of women uh, interact both generationally and geographically? And so you have a woman who was born in the 1800s telling her very young granddaughter this binary uh, approach to manhood and womanhood. And she says that men are devils and women are saints and women are born with these metaphorical machetes in their heart that they can slice off a man's tail with their love and to keep it locked away. And to curb the uh, a man's sort of destructive instincts, but as we find out in the narrative, it is impossible to do that, especially when greater forces take advantage of that. And and so I I did want to say that the that it says grandmother and seeing her defer from Amarga, but also seeing this like Venn diagram of them as well was, you know, like I said, it, it it's all very fun to experiment with these characters and to see how they go and to love them. Whatever approach that they had to their selves and the people around them, it was fun to just love them. We love them. I, I, I also think that you mentioned that machismo is, is how to say, um, without giving anything away, so much of of the narrative of of the tragedy the 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 first tragedy you write of in in where there was fire is based on it, it feels like romeo and juliet based on a, a misconception say a very yeah, yeah totally you know it, it, it's hilarious because toxic masculinity where I'm writing a book about a pesticide that is toxic to it's toxic to people and I'm trying to think of a way without not giving a lot of a lot away but Jose Maria the husband of Teresa has a foil in the form of Dr. Vincent Smith who is a Yale man very waspy American man who is in Costa Rica on the American fruit plantation. And he's there on a secret assignment from his uncle on the board. And he is studying the effects of Nemagon. And because of toxic masculinity, they are put across from each other. They intersect, their lives that are parallel because Smith is a rich American doctor and Jose Maria is a poor Costa Rican laborer. They intersect for a moment and we see what kind of destruction just raw masculinity can have so so earlier you kind of answered my question a little bit but i'm wondering if we could talk about weather for a little bit because the book is full of weather and and it really affects i mean i i think everyone has and will describe this this your writing as lush <laughs> and that I think I think that plays into it too um that you're describing the landscape and 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 what the what it feels like to be outside tell me about that uh, whether obviously it's on our minds all the time because of climate change 
here in the first world, quote unquote, it's on our minds, but on the minds of those in the third world in developing countries, weather has always been very present because the first to suffer uh, are people from developing nations because they are usually uh, mined and extracted and polluted by uh, companies and corporations from these developed nations. And so, you know, there's a gigantic, very freak hurricane that happens and it exposes uh, not only, you know, damaged infrastructure in Costa Rica, but also these like damaged infrastructure in the lives of the characters. And weather was especially important because I believe my book's a very elemental novel. I very much, those four classical elements found their way into every page. Mm -hmm. It is called Where There Was Fire, of course. Um, so fire is very present, but wind and water and earth come in to sort of balance it too, because all of these elements are in constant, I'm not going to say competition, <laughs> But there is sort of a competition between these elements and weather was a great way to express uh, the way that elements interact with human lives. Absolutely. And, and, and it, so it, it seems that your, your book is, is a Leo. <laughs> I well, so it, it's, um, it's going to be a Virgo. Oh, it's a Virgo. It's going to be, That's but it's the... a, an August Virgo, which means that my book is going to have a list for everything. You're going to look at where there was fire's <laughs> fridge and there will be little refrigerator magnets with lists. <laughs> I love and it. I'm a Pisces, so I'm so surprised of having a Virgo baby. I'm like, how are, what, what's our dynamic going to be? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And and it it has clearly other other moon and sun signs so that um it can can be achieve that balance that you Yeah. You well, about. funny enough, I actually did the charts of all of my characters. And it's really funny because the four main characters, Jose Maria, Teresa, Carmen, and Lira all have all lean towards one element in a really weird way. Of course, they're all born in San Jose, Costa Rica. We all know, uh, or I chose their birth dates, but randomly choosing their time, right, based off the novel, they each got placed. So for example, Gadamin, who is an empath in the most exaggerated way possible, her sun sign is cancer, and a lot of her other placements are in cancer, the majority of them. Lira, who is in Aries, the majority of her placements are in Aries. It was very odd how this book, while obviously fiction creates very coincidental situations, right? Ha the book has revealed so much of this underlying world and also this underlying family history where I would write a sentence or I would write a chapter and talk to someone later and they would go, no, 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 that happened. This actually happened. And I go, what are you talking about? So it's been, it was like writing a prophecy, like mm. instead of telling the future, it was telling the past without actually, it, it was, it was an incredibly odd book 
to write. <laughs> I love that. And I love that you also had fun with it. And before we go, um, I'm going to ask you for some book recommendations. Sure. So loved Sea Change by Gina Chung. So fantastic. I love an octopus. We all love octopuses. They're fantastic. And Gina is such a talented writer, like a true talent. So that's recommendation number one. Let's see, recommendation number two. I'm going to go with what I'm most excited for. And that's Candelaria by Melissa Loza Oliva. It comes out, I believe, September 19th. And I cannot wait to get my hands on it. Dreaming of You was bananas. Her poetry is bananas. Melissa is, you know, not to repeat myself, but she is a talent. Uh, and so are you. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> so where there is fire, out, out now. Thanks, John. Thank you so much. I This is a, a joy and an honor and a privilege. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.